some things, and we're going to address one of those things today, but there, there are truths which, when, when they really settle into our lives, change us dramatically. And we've just sung to one of them. That we're loved that profoundly and that deeply by God. I hope you know that. I hope you really, really, really know the truth of that so much so that it's changed who you are. Beautiful stuff. You know, whenever I, um, whenever I think of uh, Thanksgiving, a picture comes to my mind, and it looks something like this, something like this. You know, it's the pilgrims uh, having arrived from the New World, and they've gone through yet another season, and they've brought in the crop, and they're ready to give thanks to God for what God has done. You know, there's always the pilgrim with the tall hat, and they're there, and you know, there's always the table, which has food upon it, which is, you know, there's plenty there. I guess in my mind, also, I have that big turkey with the fan feathered tail. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about? That's, that's in my mind as well. I literally do this every Thanksgiving, even if I don't see a picture. And I'm worried the turkey's not visible today. Because I think I know where the turkey is. Likely on the table, right? <laughs> but, I mean, it's this, it's this moment where they're just recognizing what is. And the reality of... What is, is that they have been blessed by God. And they're taking time and they're, and they're celebrating and they're feasting. But most of all, they're just saying, God, thank you for what you have done for us. No easy life they lived. You know, to come from, from Europe and to settle and to establish uh, new homes and new towns and new cities. And to be able to produce the food that uh, you see them here enjoying and, and serving. Um, I hope you recognize the reality of what is today. And this Thanksgiving, as you sit down to your feast, if it's this afternoon or maybe yesterday, maybe tomorrow, I don't know, you sit there with that abundance before you and you think, man, God is good to me. God is good to me. And let, by the way, would you let the turkey, which no longer has its fan feathers and so on, would you let them remind you that you're full even before you eat the meal? Filled with love and filled with joy and filled with peace and filled with blessing. Because God is. God is. You know, one thing I like to do every Thanksgiving here is to thank the people who produce our food, the farmers. How many farmers? Put your hand up. We've got lots of farmers in our church. Come on, way high. Don't be shy. This is a big deal. We've got lots of them. Let's say thank you. You know, I've said it before. I'll say it again. I think of farmers as co-laborers with God. Does God want you fed? Does he want you to have that feast before you in a little while? Does he want you to know the blessing of it? Yes, he does. And these folks work hard with God and for God to bless you uh, with the blessings, and me with the blessings that we know. So thank you, farmers, for the work that you do. Today we're going to be thankful for something that God also provides for us as we start the Miracle of Mercy campaign. Um, we're excited about this in all of our small groups, our life groups, our impact men's ministry, our sisterhood, our women's ministry, and otherwise, we are going to be jumping in for the next six, six weeks talking about this, 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 this central reality to the character of God, His mercy. And uh, I know there's lots of great stuff that you're going to be confronted with biblically, and I hope it's meaningful to you, but we need to be thankful, my friends, for the mercy of God in our lives. Now, don't go to sleep on that one. Don't look like Isabella. This has relevance to your life. This is an amazing thing that God has for us and that God is. You see, what we're doing when we start to look at mercy is we're recognizing again that which just is. 
This is a reality in your life and in my life. It's something that is, is to, be, to be stepped back for and, and to be observed and to be understood and go, go, oh, God, thank you. What an amazing thing you have done and you are doing for me. I've learned from my study. I mean, the materials come from Saddleback and Rick Warren, that great church in California. And, and what Rick Warren will teach you in your life uh, small groups this week is that the number one characteristic noted in Scripture, in other words, the characteristic of God, His character, which is most often mentioned in the Bible, is His mercy. That surprised me when I read that. I'm not going to go through every reference to find out. I'll just take His word for it. But it's His mercy. I would have thought maybe His love, maybe His truth, maybe His justice, maybe His grace. I mean, there are a lot of incredible attributes of God, but the number one attribute of God in the Bible, as He is described to us, as His heart is communicated to us, is mercy. Listen to um, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 76 to 78. Here is the father of John the Baptist essentially prophesying, speaking to the reality of what his son would do. But listen to in it uh, the, the description of God. And you, my child, John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, you will go, uh, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the, no the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven. It's because of the tender mercy of God that we know all that John would tell about and all that Jesus would ultimately accomplish. I want to ask you, and it's not a new question to this church, but I want to ask you when, you, when I mention God to you, what comes to your mind? It's an incredibly important um, thing to understand and reflect upon. Some people think, you know, God is harsh, some people think he's judgmental and ready to condemn. Some people think he's critical of us in our sin. Some people think he's highly demanding in terms of the way that we ought to live our lives. And I want to tell you that's why a lot of people are afraid of God in the bad sense, right? <laughs> Literally afraid of him. That's why a lot of people avoid God to the extent that they can. That's why a lot of people remain distant from God. It's because they do not understand the mercy of God, the tender mercy of our God. Now, what is mercy? We're going to define it for you in this way. The undeserved forgiveness, and we'll put that on the screen, please. The undeserved forgiveness and the unearned kindness of God. Think about that. Unearned forgiveness. If you were ever forgiven, it's not because you... Oh, I got it backwards. The undeserved forgiveness, sorry, of God. You don't deserve that if you have it. It, just, it comes because God is merciful. And if you experience his kindness, it's unearned. You haven't done anything that produces the blessing in your life that you've got. Mercy is the undeserved forgiveness and the unearned kindness of God. I want to tell you, my friends, that is how God treats you and me, whether we know it or not. And sometimes we just don't know it. Let's just, I hope, face that reality. I think a lot of Christians live as if mercy wasn't so when it is, it's a reality. It just is. This is the reality of God. Every day, we've talked about the abundance of food going to be placed before you this weekend, or maybe has already. That is the result of the mercy of God. You don't deserve that. The, the, the clothing you wear, the homes you live in, the family you have, the relationships you enjoy, everything is undeserved and unearned. But my friends, I want to tell you, it's because of mercy which dwells in the heart of God toward you and toward me. 
Now today we're going to focus on, as we will over these next weeks, different facets of mercy, but we're going to focus today on the fact that when we mess up and when we feel ashamed for what we have done, God gives us mercy. You you live there at any point? Do you have that experience sometimes? You know, when we mess up in life and, and, and we feel ashamed for what we have done? Bottom line is this, all of us mess up. I have never met a person who, who didn't. I have messed up, you messed up, no one is perfect. No one has gotten to that place in life where they've never made a mistake. The Bible says, Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the word the Bible uses for messing up. <laughs> all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in 1 John, it says, chapter 1, that if we think we haven't messed up <laughs> and we don't need his mercy, we are deceived and the truth is not in us. In other words, he's saying there's some people who might think, when I say to them, we've all messed up, some people might stand back and say, well, not me. I don't mess up. I don't sin. I'm okay. I don't need mercy. And what the Bible clearly and explicitly says is we just fool ourselves in that instance. We don't understand the reality of what is. Um, we actually are deceived. You see, all of us mess up. Let me read James chapter 3, verse 2 to you. We all stumble in many ways. There it is again. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say, and he's speaking of our words, is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. All of us stumble in many ways. You know, you ever say some words, and it's almost before you finish speaking, you're going, oh my goodness, why did I say that? <laughs> Husbands? <laughs> Wives? It happens, right? And we know that we've stumbled. We know that we've messed up somehow. We know we have fallen short. We've made a mistake. Sometimes it's in our attitudes we fall, time, fall short. Sometimes it's in our actions. And, you know, it probably wouldn't take long for all of us to zero in on something where we've messed up and fallen short. And we've stumbled. We've done something we just wish we hadn't do. How many of us of those moments in life we just wish we could have a do-over for? Yeah, just get it right this time. You know, we long for it at times. Sometimes it's our emotional reactions. You know, again, think marriage. <laughs> you know, we react in a particular way, and then the, the attitude forms and the words flow, and we go, oh, after the fact. Just, I love this person. Why am I treating him or her in that fashion with this attitude according to those words? It's just there. It's part of who we are. And I want to tell you, when we stumble, we get trapped up. Tri- up and we fall into a trap the bible says it's easy to get entrapped by sin really really is the big question that comes essentially is how does god respond to us when we mess up how does god respond to you do you think when you mess up i want to tell you in that moment god shows mercy to us every single one of us it's a story in john chapter 8 and we're going to look at it today it's a well-known story for those who read the Bible, and it, but Rick Warren renames it. It's, not, it's the story of what he calls the humiliated woman. And why does he call it that? The more I thought about it, the more I read the story, the more I reflected on the mercy of God, I thought, oh, that's good. But let me start to read it to you in John chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, first of all. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Um, I, want to, I want to tell you again, the Pharisees, they are the legalists of the day. They are the folks who are judgmental. They are the ones who are critical and finger-pointing and ready to condemn in this culture. And they weren't very popular people. It's like they're, they're more, they're, they are the morality police. And when you look at this story and you hear what, what they do to this woman, you start to understand why they weren't popular people. Um, let's go ahead and we'll read verses 5 to 6. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him, Jesus. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. You know, it wasn't done in this day. But these people bring this woman to Jesus, having caught her, as they say, in the act of adultery. And they say to Jesus, the law of Moses says to kill this woman, to throw stones at her until she is dead. And they say to him, you know, in this instance, what should we do? You see, they're asking Jesus essentially what, he's think, what he thinks in order to trap him. Three words are particularly important, I think, in the verses that we've already read. It says that they caught her in adultery, and then it says they brought her to Jesus and said, we caught her in adultery. And it says in this verse that they are accusing Jesus and setting a trap for him. They've set a trap for the woman, and they've caught her, and now they're setting a trap for Jesus. And they want to catch him too, right? They want to trip him up. They want, to, they want to get him to the place where he'll say something so that they can use that something against him. Trap him in his own words. Let me ask you, what do you get caught in? What do you get caught in? What, what traps you over and over and over and again, so much so that you are caused to stumble, as James describes? You know, this woman has been caught in an unhealthy relationship. Right? It's pretty obvious. Um, sometimes we can be caught in those relationships. Sometimes we get caught in, in, in secret habits. Anybody hear of a secret habit? Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But you know. And God knows. Sometimes it's an addiction. You know, we use substances in order to help us cope. And then we... You know, we get to a place where we have to have the substances and we can't break free. Sometimes it's materialism, the belief that money is the purpose of our lives and it will satisfy our souls. Sometimes it's people-pleasing and, you know, living for the, the approval of other people. That is a trap, my friends. That, that's where we get caught in something and, and we stumble over and over again because of it. Well, here the woman is in, in, in this position of being caught in a relationship that she shouldn't have been in. At the end of verse 6, end of verse 6 is a beautiful thing. It's a remarkable thing because in comes Jesus to this uh, reality and uh, he starts to write on the ground. <laughs> I don't know about you, but if I was there and if I was a Pharisee, which I hope I'm not, but if I was and I'm angry and I'm ready to, I've, I'm accusing this woman having caught her in a trap and I'm trying to, you know, get Jesus to fall into a trap so that I can accuse him too. And I'm standing there with the stones and I'm fired up and I'm part of a bit of a mob experience. The last thing that I want is for Jesus to bend over and start doodling in the ground. I think it would make me more angry than anything else. And it says they, they keep on talking with them, of course. And, you know, the reality is that we, we, 
we don't know what he wrote. And I think it's significant that the Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. I think it could have if it wanted to. Some people say he's writing the Ten Commandments on the ground, and that's a possibility, causing the, the Pharisees and the accusers to look and to see their own sin. Rick Warren has suggested the, that, you know, in his mind, it's very possible that Jesus uh, bends over and he starts writing the very sins of the accusers in the dirt. Wouldn't that have been sweet, huh? <laughs> you know, pride or whatever their sin might have been, he, as the Son of God, would have known. And he just, but he's scribbling something in the dirt. We don't know what's there, but what we know is what, that he did not join. He refuses to join in the humiliation of this wo- woman and instead seeks to protect her dignity. See, she has made a mistake. There's no question about that. She's cheated on her husband. But Jesus is going to deal with her one-on-one quietly in just a few minutes. Not like this. And I want to tell, tell you folks this. If there is anyone here who calls him or herself a follower of Jesus, if there's anybody here who takes the name of Christ to themselves, we have got to treat all people with dignity. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they have done. It doesn't matter what lifestyle they have chosen. It doesn't matter to the depth of sin which they have sunk. We have to treat them with dignity because that is what Jesus did. You see, here he accepted her. And he accepts everyone. He doesn't approve of everything that people do, but he accepts us. And he offers us, all of us, dignity. So I want to say, IPC, you want to know who we are? We are people who give others dignity. And if anyone comes to this place, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter what they have done, it doesn't matter if they live like us, it doesn't matter to what level they have gone, let's treat them with dignity. As Jesus treated this woman with dignity. Verses 7 to 9 say this. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And he stooped down again and wrote on the ground. Can you imagine being there? I would have loved to watch this unfold. It would be amazing. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Never really noted the phrase, the older ones first. Never, never impacted me before. Don't you find the older we get, and I guess I need to include myself in this down, the less we have to deny our imperfection. The more we, we're ready to recognize, yeah, we've messed up. It's the facade and it can fall away a little more. And you go, yeah, yeah, I mess up. So the older ones go first, and eventually everyone uh, just quietly slips away. And in the end, Jesus is there with this woman on on his own. You know, what Jesus then says to the woman has got to be powerful for us. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Uh, No, sir, she said in these words then neither do I condemn you Jesus declared go now 
and leave your life of sin. Um, you know what he's saying? He's saying, you're better than this. You don't need to live that way anymore. Um, he doesn't jump into a lengthy sermon on the evils of adultery, which he could have done, biblically speaking. He could have. You know, he, he, do, he doesn't in any way diminish her. What he says is, I don't condemn you. This is God speaking, the Son of God. I just go and don't do it anymore. I want you to note that he doesn't uh, say it's okay what she's done. He doesn't condone her behavior. But he doesn't condemn her either. And in the end of the day, he doesn't condone and he doesn't condemn. What he does is change this woman's life. See, that's what mercy does, as Jesus just pours mercy, the gentle mercy of God into her experience. And I want to tell you, that's what mercy does in our lives, too. When we accept his mercy, we are changed. You know, and, and it, when we come to that place when we can say, I don't deserve this forgiveness, but it's given to me, and this kindness that God is showing to me I haven't earned it, but it's mine. Forgiveness and kindness flowing from the heart of God into our lives, it changes us. I want to tell you one thing that does not change us, and that's condemnation, and that's judgment, and that's, that's the critical spirit that sometimes is pointed our way. That does not change a person. Oh, maybe for a, a little while it might change behavior, but it doesn't have the power to change a person's life. But I want to tell you, mercy has that power to change us. And how does, it, how does it change us? It leads us to a place of forgiveness and a place of freedom. Forgiveness from past guilt and freedom, which gives us the power to change going forward for the rest of our days. Understand this woman's encounter with the living Son of God and the change that would have come into her life from that moment on. You see, so many people get so stuck in the past that they can't get on with the future. I'm going to say that again because I know that has powerful resonance in some of your lives, if not all of your lives. Some people get so stuck in the past that they can't get on with their future. But Jesus wants to forgive us so that we can be free. The verse in Isaiah 61, which Jesus uh, quotes actually in Luke chapter 4, he's speaking of himself. He's saying those words which Isaiah spoke so long ago, prophesying that one would come to do an incredible thing in the name of God. He said, they were about me. And these are the words, Isaiah 61 verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Don't think that's just financially poor. It might include that, but it's all of we who come to a recognition of our poverty, spiritually, emotionally, whatever way, our need of Jesus and of his salvation. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, 
Now I want to tell you, my friends, that prison is not just a physical prison. It's also an emotional one. It is for those who are entrapped by, imprisoned by, caught up in guilt and in shame and in regret. So I want to ask you again, what holds you captive? Is there anything at all? What's got you locked up and imprisoned so that you can't get free of it? See, sometimes it is regrets where we just cannot forgive ourselves for that thing that we did even years and years and sometimes a lifetime ago. We can't get beyond the shame of it. And we say we believe in Scripture and we say we believe in the forgiveness of God and we say we believe in grace, but it holds us captive and we can't break free. Sometimes it's resentment. Not about what we have done. That's more the, you know, the, the uh, regret and the shame. But it's what people have done to us. And we resent them for what they have done. And we get to a place where we are so caught up in resentment that we cannot find our way out of that prison. You know, I'm never going to forget that man for what he has done. And I'm never going to let another man love me because of what happened then. And I know just as realistically, there are guys who say, I'm not going to let another woman get close to me again because of what she did to me. And we live with a resentment that is a powerful influence in our lives and we get tripped up by it and we fall into prison. We are caught in it and we can't break free. Sometimes it's envy. (laughs) Why isn't my husband like her husband? Why, why don't I get to drive the vehicle that guy gets to drive? wish I was him. Why can't I live in her home and, and wear the clothes she wears? I've asked women about this, so I know what I'm talking about today. Right? I could go on. It's just this, this dynamic that settles into our lives and it takes hold of us and, and we, we stumble and we fall and we mess up with it, but we can't break free of it. How about worry? Worry, you know. Anybody stuck in worry? Literally just this perspective that we have on life where we're afraid of what might be. It doesn't matter whether it happens or not. It really doesn't. That's irrelevant to life. It's fear rooted in our hearts which causes us to worry about what might happen. That's a prison. That's a trap. You know, on and on, the addictions or the secret sins or the secret sin of addiction. It seems awfully easy to get there, but it's really, really tough to break free. I want to read to you John 12, starting at verse 4. Jesus speaking, If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. If you're not smiling now, you should be smiling. Because that is incredibly good news. 
I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Amazing. You know, I want to tell you, I want to be like Jesus in that one. I don't want to be like those Pharisees. I, I, I want to be like Jesus in his merciful attitude toward those who mess up and who are caught up in their prisons. I want to tell you, it's not my job to judge the world, and it's not your job to judge the world. It is our job to simply point people to the Savior. I want to be clear about this so that the teaching of the Bible is just on the table. There will someday be a judgment. The Bible is really open and clear about it. In the end of time, we'll be called to give an account to God for our lives. But I want to tell you, my friends, that judgment is for people who reject the grace and the mercy of God. And I want to tell you this even more powerfully, that God doesn't want to judge Jesus' words. What he wants in the depths of his being is to show you mercy. That's why Jesus came to earth. That's why the Son of God gave up the power and the glory and the beauty and the joy of heaven and his intimate ongoing relationship with, father to, to, with his Father to literally go to the cross and to die the death of a criminal, to suffer not only physical pain but a spiritual agony that we cannot comprehend. He came and he died on the cross so that we might be forgiven of our sin, so that mercy might be showered upon our lives. As we simply say, yes, Lord Jesus, I need and I want your mercy. Listen to James chapter 2, 12 and 13. It says this. Speak and act. Here again, James is speaking about life, how we do it. As those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. It's the law of love. We've talked about that recently. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. That's a wake-up call, IPC. Judgment without mercy will be shown to those who have not been merciful. We are to be like Jesus. But then this statement, and that's why I read you the verse. Verses, mercy triumphs over judgment. It triumphs over judgment. It is the power of God at work. It is the action of Christ and what he came to give to us. I want to tell you, I'm not going to get what I deserve, and neither are you going to get what you deserve if you accept the mercy of God in your life. And that, my friends, is incredible news. That's incredible news. Psalm 86, verses 3 to 6 say this. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, Lord, for I put my trust in you. You, Lord, are forgiving and good, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. See, these verses describe the character of God. I want you to understand that. Abounding in love ready to be merciful to anyone who just says, Lord, I've messed up and I need your mercy and I pray for your forgiveness. You know, make it mine. 
I want to tell you, if you come to God at any point and you're ready to say, I've messed up and here's how I have messed up, he will not scold you and he will not lecture you and he will not give you a lengthy sermon based on the sin that you have committed. If you come to him with that heart, God will forgive you and God will be kind to you because that is who God is. Final verse, Acts 2, verse 21. Listen to this. Everyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What do you think is the critical word in that uh, verse? There are a lot of critical words in it. But you know which one I think is the most important? The word everyone. Everyone. I've tried to paint a picture to you this morning of God. John chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 and following paints a picture of God for us. Some of us might have walked into this uh, building today thinking God is harsh and judgmental and he's critical and he's ready to condemn because that's who God is. And some of us in this building today, even as those who are in a worship service, might as a result be afraid of God and leave God alone and, and, and have kept their distance from God, kept God at arm's length because I don't want to get close to such a God. I want to tell you, you don't believe in the God of the Bible if that is you. And this, this passage of Scripture and this dynamic of this thing called mercy, which Jesus so powerfully illustrates in his dealing with his precious woman loved by God, tells us that God is merciful. And he is a God who comes into our lives. And he gives us forgiveness that we don't deserve. And he showers kindnesses upon us that we have never and can never earn. And it's nothing to do with who we are. And it has nothing to do with what we have done. It has everything to do with his character. And all we need to do is to come to his presence and say, Lord, I've messed up, and I pray you will forgive me. And in that moment, my friends, he will. We're going to pray. We're going to ask... Um, the Lord for those who are interested in receiving the mercy of God to provide it today. Um, to do what only the living God can do in our lives to forgive us and to bless us with mercy and to change us. So if you'd like to pray along with me a prayer seeking the mercy of God, I'm going to ask you to pray it just in the quietness of your own heart. And this might be a prayer a person makes for the very first time and they've never understand God like this and they've never wanted to draw close to the one who can provide mercy upon mercy into their lives. Beautiful moment if that's the case. Maybe for people who have done that in the past but they're still holding on to that regret, that thing that they once did and they can't break free, they're in their prison of shame and of guilt. It's time to come to Jesus with it. I don't know your circumstance, but if you need the mercy of God, can we call on the name of the Lord today? Let's ask him for it. Let's pray.
Lord, we come to you today because we need your mercy. Because every single one of us has messed up. Every single one of us has done things that we just shouldn't have done, things that are wrong. And Lord, we know we don't deserve your forgiveness and we cannot earn your kindness. But Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we are so thankful today for the mercy of God. We're so thankful today, Lord God, that you are a God of mercy. And that you are a God who loves to show your mercy and to give your mercy to those who simply ask for it. And Lord, today, and if you want to personalize this as I pray, just in the quietness of your own heart, let's do that together. Lord, today, I ask you for your mercy. I pray that you will forgive me for the wrongs that I have done. Lord, today, I want to start to change here and now as I follow you as Savior and as Lord. Lord Jesus, I want to break free from the prison of guilt and of shame and of regret. So I come to you as that woman came into your presence so long ago. And yes, Lord Jesus, I pray that you will forgive me that you will cleanse me from all sin and unrighteousness that I have engaged in. And I ask for your mercy in my life. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for giving and being so willing to give what I call on you for today. Help me to leave this place, Lord, changed. As that woman would have ready to walk away from what was so that she could walk into and so that I can walk into what will yet be. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Lord Jesus, thank you for, thank you for your mercy. Lord God, we celebrate today who you are. We celebrate today that for those who can take hold of these truths and actually believe them deeply, that we are changed and that we are set free. Help us, Lord, to live in that freedom. Help us to count on and believe in your ongoing mercy toward us and the joy that we can know as we live in relationship with you. These things we pray together in the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Why don't we stand together?